This episode of Orodua, Afina Tamarapa is joined by Shane James, no Muaupoko, no Ragitani, no Tiarawa, no Ngatikuya, as he speaks to his experience over a long period of time in caring for Taonga Māori. Shane's passion for mahitoi and caring for Taonga created by Atsupuna has led him to study exquisite examples of artistic excellence that are held and cared for by the team at Te Papatongarewa. As a carver and curator of mahitoi, Shane has carried the mātauranga he has gathered so Māori artists who are researching the artworks of Atupuna can benefit from his wealth of experience. Nō reira e te iwi. Tēnākotukatoa,eraweka-mai-ana-tupu-kai-tango-tāne-mataraukiri. My name is Shane James. Uh, my iwi affiliations or my ancestral affiliations are with uh, Muupoko, uh, Naitahu, Te Arawa, uh, Ngāti Kuia, Ngāti Apa, Rangatāne, uh, Ngāti Rārua, as well as my Southern England uh, ancestry and Norwegian. I know that through my uh, DNA test. <laughs> so um, I grew up in uh, Whanganui Atara, Wellington. Been here all my life, and I work at Te Papa Tongarewa uh, as a kaitiaki collection manager. Ooh, Thank you. Uh, how long have you worked at Te Papa Tongarewa? So I've been at Te Papa now uh, for 17 years. I uh, first started there as a contractor and then moved on to a full-time position as a kaitiaki uh, collection manager, looking after the Māori collection, and that has developed into also looking after the large sculpture collection as well. And how did you begin your journey with Taonga Pūoro? Uh, my actual journey began at Te Papa Tongarewa. When I first started there, there were a number of individuals, Tamaho, um, Dion, Shane, Pasini and those. And of course yourself, Afina worked there as well. So there was a group there that were playing Tongapuru. And when I saw them play it, I was sort of captivated by the sound. And uh, I said, oh, can I join? Can I play? Um, so luckily we had uh, a very supportive environment at the Papa where we were um, 
uh, very sharing of the the knowledge that we had or had uh, accumulated. And also when I was looking after the Māori collections, I saw the Tongaporo in the collection and that sort of really sparked my interest in them. I'm also a carver, so I had an interest in relation to the sound, but also into the making and construction of those tonga. Can you describe when you first encountered a taonga tipuna in the collection storeroom? How did that make you feel and what did you actually see? I suppose it began really with part of my job is taking back-of-house tours and then we'd have uh, artists, enthusiasts, players come and want to look at the taonga within our collection. And so with those experiences and conversations, knowledge was shared with me. Uh, We talked about those taonga. So it was really those visitations by enthusiasts that sort of really started my own journey and my own interest in the taonga. Because you talked about being captivated by the taonga in the collections. Is there any particular taonga that drew your attention? I suppose at first it was probably the very loud sounding taonga, the putatara, the pukaia, because they have that really loud presence. And then as I dwelled further into Tongapura, the other instruments came of interest because of the softer sounds, the kuwowo, the nuru, even poi. Um, one that was really a moment that began a little exploration was the pahu, because the pahu, I was in the collection and I found this box and it had this tonga in it and I opened the box up and I went, what's that? And uh, the records didn't really have any confirmed indication of what that tonga was. But then I looked at it and I could see strike marks on it. Then I looked at it and went, wow, uh, that's actually a pahu. So I looked at another one in the collection and went, yep, that's definitely a pahu. And then I went and made one that I have here at the moment based on that one or inspired by that tonga. Can you just... Tell us, what is a pahu? Pahu is a drum, is a Māori drum. So when we look at the Māori drum, it's actually, there's slight variations in it. It can go from a tree stump, hollow, of hitting a, hitting a tree stump, or and different woods react in different ways, give different sounds. So you choose, select a wood that has a very nice resonance, because not all wood will sound the same. What's a nice wood? I think matai, it does depend on the knots and et cetera in the wood. I did make some out of rimu and they just didn't seem to have the sound quality that I wanted. The one that I made in the end based on the one in the collection is actually from a door jam from the old museum. So I don't actually know what the wood is, but it has a beautiful sound. The striker that you have there is that wood too? Yes, I have a striker that is also wood. That will also affect the sound that you get. So you have to have those two components, the pahu, the drum, and also your striker or your drum stick, I suppose. This one I've got is actually based on uh, Rako Atua from our collection, uh, is from our tribe, Muupoko. So I, I really was captivated by that Rako Atua and um, I made uh, one based on that. So um, um, what I really like is that I'm using it in a, a new way, but it still has that connection for me. Mm, awesome. You have uh, uh, quite a few taonga on the table here. You want to just 
talk a bit about each one, if you like. Mm. So I have some here that I've made myself, and um, luckily um, with interacting with various people and also looking at the collection. So one I made was based on one in the collection, and when I first made an example, it didn't play very well, and it really made me think, it was the same dimension, same size. So then I took the one I made and looked at the one in the collection and I went, what's different? Why is this one not working? And what I found out, it was my internal dimensions were out. They were too big. So I lost the voice very easily. So that was really a, a, a eureka moment where I went, ah, the internal structure of your taonga puoro is important in relation to the sound. So it really enabled me to use the taonga in the collection to create a new one. And those are things that are very important. And because they're all handmade, they're very unique in their sound. It's like human beings. We all have our own voice and sound of our voice. The other taonga that I have here are... Um, from Te Papa's collection. They're from the Haumanu Collective. So they were uh, gifted to the museum really in that early uh, resurgence of, of looking at Taungaporo and, and looking at museum collections to rediscover and make new Taunga. Uh, they were gifted to the museum, but they were gifted in a very unique way that challenged the tikanga of museums where these ones were to be collection items, but they were also to be used and played. So this is very uh, a challenge for museums to have collection items that are also touched, used and played. And obviously over time, because of the plane, damage happens, but also life is given to them. You gain and lose in some ways. But what's more important than the preservation is actually connection and bringing them alive again so that they have meaning with us in our contemporary times. Awesome. Thank you. I'm just going to go back to uh, something that you mentioned about the internal dimensions of a putorino. That would have been difficult, having to access the insides of Putorino in the museum, right? Yeah, it gets really quite difficult to sort of work out what the internal area is. So, you know, you might put a torch down there or your phone looking, looking. And, you know, so it was always quite a challenge to really find what the internal, you could see what the dimensions on the external are. I did do a project a number of years ago to x-ray. So we ended up going to G GNS. Yeah, GNS. Um, and they had a, a like a, a x-ray machine that you would see like at the airport. So we put some tonga through that and that created some issues for us. How do we protect them? Because there's rollers. So we ended up putting them in this plastic. But really interesting from that, we got these internal dimensions. And I put a kuowo through. And what was really interesting was that you could see that it, um, because of the types of instruments uh, or tools that our tūpuna used, they had gone from one end, drilled from one end, and then gone from the other end. You could tell because it actually slowly tapered in, which would be an indication of the drill they were using. So that was really interesting for me. For me. Um, also, I, I wanted to capture that information for makers. As I sort of said, it's very important, the internal dimensions, to uh, determine the voice. Okay. So you also talked about practitioners that regularly visit Te Papa Tongarewa and come in and uh, research the taonga, right? So Warren Warbrick would have been quite a 
influential person in terms of your journey, right? Mm. Warren Walbrick is based in Palmerston North. He's an old, he's been working in the museum world for a long, long time, but he's also an expert maker. We've done workshops with him, and through that time, I've learned a lot from him. I did one workshop where we made a pukaya, and he talked about, you know, how important the internal dimensions are. He would, in fact, say, don't put any carving on because you'll get distracted by by making it look pretty. But really what's important is actually what its voice sounds like. So, And that's been one of the beautiful uh, things in being involved in the early uh, resurgence. Well, I was sort of not early, early, but late early. Being involved in that really, there was so much um, enthusiasm and this beautiful uh, sharing. Everybody wanted to share um, this knowledge so that, that it would come back up into our community. So it was really special to be involved in, in that time. Absolutely. And even Rob Thorne, because yes. Rob was doing research on embers Mm. being used to create, you know, the cavities within Taumapuro, which would account for tapering, mm. you know, happening from either end, eh? Yeah, and I ran into uh, Rob Fort when he was doing that research and he was up at Tamanawa, and that was even before I began my 17-year journey in museums. And I remember going up there, I was doing some contract work for Tamanawa and then um, Warren was there and he goes, oh, I've got this guy here and he's doing, you know, some some freaky stuff. And uh, he's researching uh, how they made Tonga. So, uh, yeah, I really remember that very when he was doing the research. And, and then he's really progressed the plane and really taken it into modern times. Exactly. So we've talked a bit about the range of Tonga Pūoro that you yourself have made. Um, is there any particular area that you specialise in? I suppose um, teaching. So I'm continuing that teaching at Te Papa. So we're teaching new people. Shane Pasini, Dion and Tamaho have moved on to new careers and new adventures. And so um, I was just talking to you, Afina, before we came in here and, and I said I want to make sure that Tongapuro have a presence in the future into Papa. So part of that is passing on to the next generation. So that's what I'm doing now is teaching the next generation how to play, how we use it in our opening ceremonies and our porphyry at the Papa. When we used to go out to other institutions, we became known, oh, they'll have Taonga Poro and playing these instruments. So we became known as a centre for Taonga Poro. Mm-hmm. What's been your most memorable experience playing Taonga Puoro for Te Papa? What has been good for me was doing the porphyry, the ceremonies we do there, welcoming people, also the Matariki events that we played at. Uh, most recently was the official ceremony where Matariki became an official holiday or an official celebration for the nation. And just being part of those events, uh, also repatriation. Uh, one of my colleagues said, you know, we're bringing Tupuna back from overseas. Um, in some cases, they may find our real slightly different from their time but one thing that they wouldn't recognise is the plane of the Tongaburu so that was really nice to reintroduce or have those instruments in those really special events mm. We talked a bit about aspects of tikanga that is uh, ethics and the right way of doing things uh, you mentioned uh, some research involving uh, x-rays mm. in terms of 
tikanga, you know, were there any challenges around that sort of mahi? Because it's very groundbreaking. One thing that was very interesting was working inside the collections in the Whare Taonga. In those early days, we would sometimes be playing Taonga Poro in those rooms. And then the question came from some of my colleagues is, oh, should you be playing those in here? You could wake up the spirits. And that went, oh, okay. So I had to really think about that. I went out and talked to some people that I respected and said, hey, look, this question was posed to me whether it was appropriate to be playing these instruments in this sacred space. And they said, yes, it is the voices of our ancestors. And then I went back to my my colleagues, their question, and I said, well, I went out there into the community and asked these questions, and, and they believe that it is appropriate for these instruments to be played in appropriate ways and appropriate circumstances. So one way that we do that now, when you enter those spaces, we do a karakia, and that acknowledges the physical elements, but also the spiritual elements within those collections and within those taonga. So I would start playing either a putatara or pukaya, because my understanding is that our tohunga used those in times of old as another way of communicating with the spiritual world. That now has become part of how we welcome people into that space. And whenever I uh, bring someone in to do that, I actually explain how this is actually uh, important because we're reintroducing these uh, taonga back into our consciousness and then reintroducing them back into our tikanga as well because they went dormant for a while. So for many people, they haven't seen these or heard these instruments played in a a traditional or contemporary traditional context. I remember one person, when we were doing one pōwhiri, we were playing the pūtōrino, and uh, one of the visitors coming, uh, Kaumatua, um, posed the questions, why were you playing a pūtōrino when you're welcoming into a space because those are used at tangi? And that really, went, oh, okay, that's an interesting. So once again, I went out and asked, talked to other people and went, oh, what's your, what's your thoughts on this? Because this, this issue was posed to me. My understanding of it was that was one of the uses. It wasn't exclusively used for that. And that's one of the interesting things we're going through now um, after we've you know, firmly recovered the taonga uh, is how do we incorporate it in, in, in contemporary times. So, for example, me and Shane Pasini used to, uh, for the rugby and other games um, happening at the Cake Tin in Wellington, we would be on the field playing the pukaias before the players came out onto the field. And that's a very, you know, that's not a traditional, rugby's not traditional for for Māori, it is probably becoming traditional, and Tamaho got us into that, because he used to do it, and then he handed it over to us, he said, well, the, the crowd really getting it, and I said, well, we're actually at this pivotal moment, like the haka, the haka is part of that you know, the All Blacks, or part of rugby, part of sports now, and I said, the plane of Pukaya Putata will become part of that tikanga. And, uh, and, and another, I remember, uh, was a Rugby Sevens guy asked me, he said, oh, what's, what, what is this? Why do you play these Putata Pukayas? I said, well, in the times of old, these would have been the sounds you would have heard during battle, before battle. And so if you think about it, the sports field is the new battleground. 
And so I said, that's where it's symbolic, is actually um, announcing this challenge or this event that's going to be happening between two opposing teams or opposing tribes in the old days. All right, cool. In the revival and the regeneration of Mātauranga Māori to do a taumapuoro, a lot of these questions come up, don't they? Mm. Yeah. So your aspirations for the future, uh, you know, what are they and what do you think needs strengthening? Um, one of the things I want to make sure that we were talking about before was that when I leave to Papa, the taumapuoro tradition is firmly there. It's always been a challenge how you incorporate tikanga Māori or the Māori world into a, a foreign institution doesn't always fit well, um, but sometimes you have to change things or, or alter them in ways that make sense. Um, that's one thing that I want. I want to make sure that that becomes a, a tradition of the papa. The other thing is that it continues to evolve and continues to attract new people. We take it to new places. It travels around the world. When I um, took shows, I went with shows over overseas or exhibitions. We incorporated that in the opening ceremonies. And that it doesn't go dormant again, that it it continues to um, these beautiful sounds. Um, What is really interesting is how we're evolving that in relation to, you know, we're having jams, jazz, you're seeing modern music, fusions happening. I think that's really a positive thing because it actually brings it up into our modern contemporary times of how we see the world, how we see Tongaporo. And I, I hope people don't lose the elements of the spiritual nature of the Tonga, that they're associated to gods and spirits, that they don't just become like a musical instrument. They've, they're actually much deeper than that. Can you just talk a bit about one really memorable experience that you've had playing Taungapuot or perhaps overseas and the kind of response that you got from from people not having heard that sort of sound before. What I really like about the use of Taungapuot is that it actually creates a vibration. The sound comes out and I like to use that at the beginning of an event because I feel it puts people in a different state. When they hear the sound, it's almost like a meditation happens. You get into a different state of mind. It enables people to get into that state and we're, oh, something. You see um, sometimes for speeches when they clink a glass, <laughs> I say, oh, that's like a taungapuro for some cultures. <laughs> but the playing of those instruments, what I like is the resonance. And when you're opening up an exhibition, you're opening it up to the community. There's people doing karakia, karanga, waiata. So for overseas people, they also have their own, uh, say for instance, if I go for America where we had Wales Tohora playing exhibition over there and when playing for openings of that, we would also say, oh, is there an indigenous people here of this area that can come with us? Music is an international language and they bring out their instruments and they have that similar resonance. I've had jams with Native Americans, they're playing their flutes, we're playing our flutes, so with Aboriginal people as well. So, you know, you get this uh, connection through all cultures. Mm, Cool. What a privilege it is to work with Taonga museums, isn't it, Shane? Aye. Yeah, so I don't see you leaving Te Papa Tongarewa 
in the near future. So I hope that you're going to be there for a very long time. Yes, we'll see <laughs> if, a, if another door opens to even a, another adventure. But I love my job. It's not something that everybody gets to experience. Some people don't work in jobs they particularly love. The job also working at the Papa opened the Māori world for me. Being an urban Māori, growing up in Lower Hutt, I always knew I was Māori, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, in relation to I don't speak the real, that's a challenge for me. I'm not saying I'm not going to speak the real. Um, it's a maunga that I have to climb. But um, the Taonga Puro gave me an ability to have another voice. And even carving was another way for me to explore taha Māori, the, the world of Māori. And so I think all of us are doing our little parts in different ways to celebrate the uniqueness of our Aotearoa culture. And I think that's something that you're seeing happening more and more. People are seeing the richness that it gives to our community. And Te Papa is one of those ones that have helped to explore the Māori world. Mm, indeed. Do you have any final tips for people who are either wanting to learn how to play or learn how to make taonga pūoro? Yeah, it's very important that when you're going on this journey that you have your own instruments, eventually. Usually in the beginning, people are lending new ones to play and teach you. But after a while, you need your own to sort of um, grow because they do have their unique voices, like there are tonga, uh, um, some um, haumanu tonga and te papa, the one that I have here, Putorino. I, I really didn't, I wasn't able for a while to be able to get a nice sound. And then I went back to it and um, I really, now I love it. And it's got a real special voice. So that's important on your journey is to get a tonga. And actually uh, making your one is very good. There's various wānangas and people out there training people, teaching people. Uh, you just got to, you know, put that voice out there. And um, when you put that voice out there, it comes, it responds to you. I even teach every now and then in my, in my garage at home because I see the value in having your own instruments. And they can, if you want to buy them, they can be relatively expensive because they take a lot of time to make. Making your own is a, is a good journey, but it's also good to support those artists that are making tonga. And there are artists that have put a lot of work into them. So when you get their instruments, they're beautiful. So like even for Putorino, some could be really good at uh, Kokiritane, some could be really good at uh, Tawai or Tehine, have different instruments too. So when even at Te Papa, when we've got a large group, we'll listen to the different instruments and go, oh, this one goes really well with this one. Oh, that one doesn't sound good with this one. So as you explore or play Taungapuru, you'll get an ear for it. And luckily we had great teachers over the time that have um, taught us. Um, you know, uh, Richard Nunn's told me a good one. This is like, sometimes a little is enough. And so that, that's an interesting thing when you when you learn, you, you want to play long and, and for a long duration, but sometimes it's just those really subtle sound is, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Would you like to just play a couple for us before mm. we finish? I've got one, uh, a putatara, and this is a good example of uh, when you make one. I made this putatara and uh, played it and I thought, oh, it doesn't sound very good. Oh, I, I think I've done something wrong. And then I gave it to um, Richard Nunn and went, oh, look, I made this putatara. Can you have a go on it? I think it's, I think it's pakaru. It's, it's not working. And he played it and he goes, 
no, it's not the tongue of ISU. So, um, so I actually then, well, okay, okay, okay. I can't use that as an excuse. So, but now I, I play it and I love it. It's got its unique voice. So I'll give you a, a demo. Stunning. What's that double vibration I heard? So, yes, you probably noticed probably three different voices I was getting out of that. There was a high-pitched one and then a deep rumbling one, and that's unique to that instrument. It, it does some stuff that I haven't been able to get with other putatara. It's got a very long mangai on it, wooden piece, so it's slightly different from the smaller putataras you get. And so with the length of it, what I've found with um, the the pukaya and putatara, you can have very short ones, you can have very long ones. The longer they get, the more it tends to be the more a uh, few variations in voices you get. And as you go down lo- uh, shorter, the voices become a bit more restricted. But that's only from my experience. Others may may say differently. It's all about, once again, how it's made. Mm-hmm. What type of shell was that? So that's a trident shell. It um, comes from the Pacific. One of the things that has to be taken into account is that the actual conch, the shell part that we're using, is different from what our tupuna had. So our tupuna got the ones from around our waters, and our waters are, are colder than the Pacific. So they tend the shells tend to be smaller. And if you look at the papa's collection, the shells are quite small. So what that small shell does is it comes with a higher pitch. And as you get a bigger shell, it comes with a deeper resonance. So there are a difference in the sound qualities we're getting today. Um, so you take that into account when you're, um, when you're making your instruments. Even uh, the influence of European music is also influencing us um, in some cases without us even knowing. And in some cases we know because we're trying to get more and more sound out of our Pukaias, our different types of taonga. You got another one there for us? Yeah, so I've got one here. Um, it's a double hole pukaia. And this is one that I made with uh, Warren Warbrick at a workshop we had in Fitirea. Having him there giving me advice on how to make the inside really enabled me to get a tonga that plays very beautifully and very easily. So that can be the difference between a really expertly made one and one that's just made with someone that doesn't quite understand uh, some of the nuances of it. What I'm doing in the playing of that pukaya is altering by using my mouth the the intensity of my blow or the lack of intensity, even moving the pukaya around to get those variations. And that's what I'm teaching our newbies at the papa that just don't blow it like I remember the when we in the old days when I was first learning. I called it the honking horn, where we played and we tried to be loud, and it sounded like a, a cacophony of, of of cars, a car jam. But over time, we've 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 looked at it more in depth and got those beautiful voices. <laughs> Mm. 
one more tonga there? Yes, and now we've got one from Tapapa's collection. It's from part of the Haumanu Collective, the one that I talked about earlier about how they donated it. This one's a nuru. It's from Whalebone made by Brian Flintoff, the carving. And what I really like about this, this is a good example of how your material can influence the sound. Now with bone, it seems to be a little bit easier to play than the wooden nurus or kowowos, and it also has a very clean, crisp sound. So that's where material, and the type of material, the type of wood, bone, wood, influences the voice. So that's with that use of bone. It's got a very, really crisp, to my ear, crisp and clear sound. I'll tell you an interesting story Mm. um, about the use of different materials. So obviously our tūpuna used human bone as well for making uh, tonga portal. So I remember I was um, the story that I tell people when we're going through the back of collection, looking at traditional ways or traditional material that we used. I was travelling in my dad's car once and I said, Dad, when you die, what do you want to happen to you? And he says, I want to be cremated. And I said, Dad... I want to use your bones to make flutes. And he's Pākehā, so that was really quite a shock for him. And he didn't answer me till six months later, and he said, yes, you can use my my arms and my legs to make flutes. So then I actually researched to whether you can actually do this in contemporary times. So I rang up various different, I rang up a funeral parlour, I rang up the Ministry of Health, and then um, uh, they said, oh, and I said, oh, look, I've got a quite an unusual um, request. I said, when my father passes away, I want to use his bones to make flutes. They said, oh, okay, we'll ring you back. I got rang by a lawyer. He said, what did you want? Okay, oh, uh, okay, I'll get somebody else to ring you back. Long story short, I got rung by another gentleman and he said, actually, you can do this under the Human Tissues Act. It's like when you donate your body to science or your heart or your body organs to save somebody else's life. And he said, the criteria is that the person has that as a request in their will and also that it is removed in a way that does not cause offence. And part of what, what I was talking about was that is about actually old traditions. How do we keep those old traditions alive? So I'm giving my bones to my children so that they can be made into flutes because it will be an honour for me to, a part of me to be around and I like to talk a lot. So even when I'm dead, I'll still be making sounds, but it'll be through my bones. And so, um, yeah, this is an interesting um, journey for me. So and, and hopefully my children will appreciate that. They think I'm already weird. They think I'm a weird dad, but um, I said to them, this is, this is your inheritance and you can pass it on from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Kōrero. Very deep, very hōhonu. Just to finish, is there anything you would like to say in terms of Tonga Puoro? Probably I would like to thank the many people 
that have contributed to my journey, and there have been a lot, the many people that have run wānangas, that have listened to my um, questions, because I wouldn't be here today, I wouldn't be here playing the instruments that I do today without their contribution. So thank you to all of you, you know who you are. Some of them are still here in this world, some of them are in another world, but thank you to you all. Kapoi, Namihi nui kia koe hoa, miharo tō kōrero Namihi nui. Kia tau ngā manaakitanga te mengaro ki runga ki tēnā ki tēnā o tātou. Kia mahia te hua mā kihikihi, kia toi te kupu, toi te mana, toi te reo, toi te aroha. Kia whakamawa, kia tīna. Tīna. Haumi e hui e. Tāhiki. Kapoi. Mmm.